Warning, the following podcast contains lingo, jargon and scientific mumbo-jumbo. Listener discretion is advised for old school trainers. Talking coaching, rowing and all things sports science. It's The Bro Show with Bill Tate and Rod Siegel. Well, welcome back to The Bro Show, Rodney. Welcome. How are you going? Yep, going well. Thanks, BT. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. So we had our last podcast, we had John Tascone talking about strength and conditioning, who was our first guest. And today we've got another special guest. We do, yep. We've got, um, as we affectionately call her, old mate Kiwi. So we've got Anna Holt here. She is our new PhD student. We've I think we've referred to her on previous episodes when talking about some of the power meter stuff we've been mm. doing. So um, yeah, Anna's here doing his, her PhD with us, leading that project for us. Um, but she's actually here today to talk about her master's thesis, which is more about interval training and um, time course of recovery from different types of interval training. So um, Anna, welcome. Thank you, nice to be here. Good to have you here. So um, yeah, can you, I guess maybe as a, as a start off, do you wanna give us a little bit of a background as to um, you know, where you're from, what you've done, um, sort of leading into coming over here. Yeah, sure. So, um, obviously, old mate Kiwi, I'm from New Zealand. So, um, started off as a having a background in rowing, um, rowed for um, Auckland RPC for a couple of years. So, I had a bit of experience in the high performance rowing program there. I really loved rowing and was just um, fascinated, sort of, um, the physiology behind it and how I could make myself faster. So that really directed my studies into sports science. Um, I ended up doing my master's through AUT and I was interning at the same time at High Performance Sport New Zealand. So um, got some good experience there and, and ended up um, going on to become an assistant physiologist there. And uh, yeah, really that led me to here where I saw the PhD opportunity in rowing with power and really thought it would make a huge impact in the sport. So um, here I am. Yeah, well, it's good to have you here. You've been here for what, for about two or three months now? And three months now. Yeah, yeah, really sort of sinking your teeth into sorting out all the power meter stuff for us, which we'll get to probably at another stage that's still pretty early days. But um, yeah, I guess we're here to talk today more about interval training uh, and and recovery time courses of different types of interval training. So do you want to give everyone just a bit of a background on what your master's was in? Yeah, sure. So uh, with my master's, I really wanted to look at uh, what the recovery requirements were for um, following high intensity, different types of high intensity interval training uh, in rowers, so uh, what we did was we had a group of um, highly trained rowers and they performed three different types of high intensity interval training. So we had a threshold type session, which was uh, five sets of 10 minutes on with four minutes rest. And then we had a VO2 max type session, which was uh, five sets of three and a half minutes on and four minutes rest. And then we had a highly uh, anaerobic glycolytic session, which was 10 sets of 30 seconds on with um, five minutes rest. And what they did was they performed that um, sort of, it was a, a randomly assigned um, controlled study. So they performed one of those sessions on a Monday and then throughout the rest of the week, we monitored their um, their we monitored several recovery measures of them. Um, so uh, we took them immediately post and then sort of every 10 hours post just before what their, uh, their next session would be to see whether or not they'd be recovered uh, for that next session. And the athletes continued to um, perform their training uh, throughout that week. So it was a non-passive recovery period, which uh, we thought was really important because all previous researchers uh, looked at a passive recovery period, but obviously uh, with athletes, they're not going to sit around and wait to recover. They're going to continue training. So we wanted to see how they would train within a normal uh, training week. Um, yeah, so we took several recovery measures. We took some uh, cardiac autonomic recovery measures. So that was resting heart rate variability. We also took... Um, post-submaximal exercise heart rate variability. So the athletes performed what we call a 5-5 test. So they did five minutes of um, submaximal exercise or submaximal rowing on the erg, and then they um, sat passively for five minutes and we, we recorded post-exercise heart rate variability during that passive uh, rest. 
And so what was that sort of intensity like? How did you choose that intensity? Uh, it was guided off what they uh, would typically do for their, uh, like their low intensity ergs. So we wanted it to be just below their first uh, ventilatory threshold. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Uh, we also had some other, yeah, we had we had several recovery measures. So we took some maximal exercise heart rate, which was during that 5-5 test. Um, and we took heart rate recovery, which was immediately post-exercise during that 5-5 test. And then for performance, we also uh, got them to do a 30-second wing gate test. So as hard as they could for 30 seconds on the ERG, uh, we measured mean power, and then we also measured their peak power during that test as well. And then we also recorded... Uh, perceived recovery so that was um, muscular fatigue how they felt um, just general fatigue mental fatigue uh, just to get a good uh, a good overall indication of how recovered they were feeling yeah great and also did you say that you had um, you measured some cortisol levels yeah well? we did we did so um, we looked we also looked at not only their time to recover but we looked at um, what their sort of response was to exercise so immediately post-exercise we looked at uh, salivary cortisol and we also looked at blood lactate as well to get a um, an indication of how they responded to the session so Rodney maybe just to refresh people on, on cortisol yeah, because that's probably the one thing that people might be less familiar about. Yep, yeah, so cortisol essentially is, it's a stress hormone. So, um, yeah, you see that rise after periods of stress, periods of exercise, things of that nature, to keep it pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess, all right, that begs the question then, Anna. What did you find? Uh, well, interestingly, so uh, from... Well, I guess before, before we do that, what, what did you expect that you might find? Okay, yeah, good question. Um, so uh, previous research has indicated that um, sort of there's one study um, by Stanley 2012 who sort of collated all of the research looking at autonomic uh, recovery. And so that's Jamie Stanley? Yep. Yep, so Jamie Stanley, a, uh, one of the, our good physiologists here in, this, in, in Australia, is down at um, South Australian Sports Institute, so doing a great job down there. Yeah, cool. Jamie, so, give him a bit of a plug. Yeah. Carry on. So he, he collated a whole lot of um, research on recovery and, and he sort of indicated that uh, so for high intensity exercise, recovery time course for autonomic variables uh, appears to be about, well, under 48 hours uh, is what was expected for um, intensities between the first and second uh, ventilatory threshold recoveries. Uh, was suggested to be 24 to 48 hours and then below the first ventilatory threshold um, was expected to be less than 24 hours. So for us we were expecting sort of over 48 hours or around 48 hours for all of our measures because they were all um, sort of above the second ventilatory threshold. Uh, yeah, um, so that's so why we measured right through to 72 hours but we didn't quite need to. Didn't need to, yeah. So I guess on that, that's a really good point. So um, going back to those three sessions that you compared, um, have you got there or can you remember roughly what the intensities were? So those five by 10 minute pieces were done at, you know, sort of 100 and something percent of their ventilatory threshold power or, and so yeah, on and so yeah. forth. Yeah, so we, uh, we also measured their uh, VO2 peak, um, peak power before uh, we started um, data collection. So we had a good idea of what their percentage, uh, the intensity percentage of their um, VO2 peak power for each of those sessions was. So for their uh, the 5 by 10 minutes, which was sort of the threshold type session, they did around 80% of their um, VO2 peak power. Which, which would be, for lay people, would be about 80% of their 2K. Would that be rough, yeah. roughly yeah. right? So yeah. if you were if you were wanting to apply this, it would be five by 10 minutes at about 80% of your 2K power. That's right, yeah. yeah. And looking at your data here that you've got sitting in front of us, um, clearly that is above the lactate or ventilatory threshold because at the end of that session, their lactates were just over eight millimoles. So um, yeah, I mean, if most, especially these were, what were the age of these? Rowers, roughly? Uh, they're all, all around 20, 22. Yeah, so youngish athletes, you'd imagine that they're their threshold power as a percentage of their VO2 peak power would probably be below 80%. It might be about 75% roughly, if I had to guess. So the fact that they, on average, did it at about 80% to me means they'll probably 
roughly about 5% above their threshold power, which is pretty tough for five, five by 10 minutes. With so four minutes With off. four minutes yeah. off, yeah. And, and then that, that is shown there by the fact that their lactate is about eight millimoles. So clearly it's, it's above the, the lactate and ventilatory thresholds there. Yeah, I can Hard session. definitely <laughs> say that one was the least favorite. <laughs> yeah, I can, yeah, yeah, that's the, the one I I'd bet. do last. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they they were blinded to it, so they didn't know which one they were, um, which one was coming for them uh, each week. So, so they showed up and had no idea what they were going to do. On yeah, the oh, yeah. That's, that's we, didn't want them, we didn't want them to stress knowing what they were about to do. How, so, how did you um, get that through ethics? Like, <laughs> uh, ask AUT. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and then we had their their VO two max session was about ninety seven percent of their VO two peak power. So very close to that um, that sort of VO two peak value that we would expect. And yeah, then that's that, very hard. That's a solid session. Mm, they did really, really well. Yeah. And then and then their um, the highly anaerobic glycolytic session we had way above um, VO two peak power. So it was a hundred and fifty six percent. So. Um, yeah, so re- almost really flat out. Yeah. Would that be flat out for thirty seconds? And then yeah, almost, oh, yeah. well, almost, recovery. almost yeah. flat out. Yeah. yeah. So um, that was one hundred and fifty-six. Just for those who didn't understand Anna's um, accent. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean that that's pretty tough. And you know we've done that session here, and I've noticed that's about right. Athletes mm. can do you know anywhere between about one hundred and fifty and one hundred and sixty percent of their max power. If you were to do one or just one you could mm. you could do way higher than that yeah you got to do 10 of them peak, yeah yeah it's, it's the third one that gets you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've only got seven left yeah <laughs> yeah so that's why we had the the five minutes rest for that one uh just to really maximize the quality of that session make sure that it was purely uh, anaerobic glycolytic and that there was no sort of um other aspects creeping in there from from fatigue from those sessions like from the 30 second um, pieces yeah so yeah, I guess so. You expected um, that all all of the sessions would take probably more than forty eight hours to recover th- from. Yeah, we thought we thought around um, yeah, sort of around that mark. Yeah. In terms of recover, what what was your expectation of, of recovery? Does that mean to the point where everything had you know all the markers had plateaued back down to a stable level and you could do the work again? Is that what you? defining recovery yeah so we defined recovery um in this um study as return to baseline so we measured everything the morning before they did the session uh, and then we looked and um, defined recovery or the point of recovery is where they um returned or uh, rebounded beyond their baseline measures Yeah. yeah yeah And just looking at the training week here, which looks like a very solid, you know, standard training week. So they were obviously, yep. you know, training pretty hard through the period. Um, yep. They had a rest day on that Sunday, mm. so yep. you know they, you know, let them let them recover so that that yep. um, measure were, on the Monday morning was a recovered measure. Yeah, yeah. they were always coming fresh into that um, that first session. Yep. Yeah. Well, that sucks a little bit too. For very first session of the training week is something as hard as that. Yeah. Well, at least they got it over with. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, I think that's the best way of doing it. It's my philosophy. Get it out of the way. Something like a band-aid. Yeah. Yeah. Off. Nice. So I guess then um, you were obviously then comparing those three different type of stimuluses. So, um, you know, I guess in the time of year that we're in now, it's sort of end of October, we're doing quite a lot of threshold training, a lot of sessions that are very similar to this, if not exactly the same. Um, the second session there, so those five by 10 minutes, the, the second session being the five by three and a half minutes, as you called it, a VO2 max type of session. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that they were at 97% of their, their VO2 peak power suggests that that's you know, definitely the case. Uh, that session's probably done a little bit more leading into racing in, in the sort of block leading into racing. Um, and then those 10 by 30 second sprints traditionally not really done that much in rowing although there's a study that's been done that shows that it can improve 2k rowing performance um, but again that might be something that you b- might do in the period leading into into racing mm-hmm. um, or it might even be something that you do at the very first part of the year to almost sort of fast track your fitness but that's all up for debate i guess yeah. that's um, contentious yes um, and so i guess three different types of sessions that you might do in different times of the year um, and then I guess what did you expect that you would see in terms of comparing those three and how long it might take people to recover from each one? Yeah, so we, we actually thought, um, well, from, from reading the previous literature and what it had shown, we thought that the higher the intensity, the longer it would take to recover from. So uh, I had a, 
a fair idea that um, the anaerobic glycolytic session, the 10 by 30 seconds, might have taken the longest and then sort of followed by the, the VO2 max session and, and certainly the threshold session last because it was, um, you know, the intensity was a lot lower than the other two. Mm. Um, but I was um, pleasantly surprised to see it was uh, sort of round the other the way. exact opposite of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, well, I guess and something that's probably important to, to look into is if you've got, you know, five by 10 minutes is your 50 minutes worth of work, um, 10 by 30 seconds is about, you know, f five minutes worth of work, and then five by three and a half minutes is 17 and a half minutes worth of work. Um, yeah, so I guess, I mean, the intensity is obviously very different, but the duration of the work is vastly different. You've got one that's 50 minutes and one that's only five minutes. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah so it's quite interesting. That was one thing that kind of directed the study as well, that previous research had really only looked at the effect of duration on recovery time course at intensities below the first uh, ventilatory threshold, mm. so at very low intensities, and it was sort of just assumed that at high intensities above the second ventilatory threshold that uh, pure intensity was the, the factor that really dictated recovery time course rather than whether or not there was a durational effect. Mm. And so, yeah, I guess explain what exactly you did find. Yeah, sure. So, um, so our measures of autonomic recovery, we found, uh, took the longest to recover. So those are uh, heart rate variability, post-exercise heart rate variability and uh, heart rate recovery. And they, um, from those measures, we saw that uh, the threshold session, the five by 10 minutes, took the longest to recover, and that was 30 hours, around 30 hours to recover. So still quite a lot shorter than the, the 48 that um, we expected. And also given the fact that they carried on training. So yeah. it wasn't yeah. just did the session and then it took them 39 hours to get back to baseline with no training. And sort of having a look at the training week, they did a hard session that morning, and then what did they do? They did like a T2 ergo yeah. in, in the sort of afternoon and then they did a, a gym training session that Monday and then the next morning they did, you know, a 16K, you know, presumably sort of T2 sort of paddle um, and then some, you know, some, some step rates on the some ergo, rate changes, yeah. rate changes on the ergo that, you know, look like, a, you know, some solid sort of work. It's probably in that sort of T3 sort of range, sort mm. of looking at so it there. That, so that was sort of the next high intensity session, and that was what 38, uh, 34 hours uh, following the the initial high intensity session. Mm. So. so yeah, so certainly they're they're training, they're getting on with training, and and it only took still, um, yeah, what was it, 39 hours. Uh, yeah, about 30 hours. Yeah, 30 so, hours, sorry, yeah, so they mostly did um, low intensity training, and in the because they'd recovered by that that second high intensity session. Um, though the their following their afternoon following session and the next morning session were quite low intensity sessions, long low intensity sessions, and um, yeah, from that we sort of realised that perhaps there's an effect of. Um, performing low intensity sessions after a high intensity uh, session that actually enhances recovery, actually aids, um, aids recovery. Mm, yeah, and I guess that, that's, that's really cool that you've sort of seen that and potentially shown that in, in inverted commas sort of thing, because there is that long held belief that doing recovery training can help, you know, doing low intensity training as a, let's do a recovery session can help you recover faster. But in my searches of the of the research, I haven't really found much that shows that that's actually true. What what could you speculate would be the mechanism at play there? Then, uh, aside, I think a lot of the time when you do a recovery session, your coach will say just go and clear it all out, sort of thing. Is the inverted commas, mm. which I think people think about clearing out the lactic acid. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what that's what people imagine. Is that is it as simple as just flushing things through your system? Is it you know, mechanically moving the muscles and the joints through through the range. Like, can you speculate what might be at play and why that might be something you've observed? Yeah, um, I think it is a, a blood flow effect. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily flushing uh, things out, but I think it's sort of more activation of um, or suppression of the sympathetic nervous system. So uh, the sympathetic nervous system is responsible for um, sort of activation of heart rate that's uh, sort of associated with stress 
Um, so it's, it's activated when we exercise and when we stop exercising it's suppressed and we get more of a parasympathetic activation so that's sort of our rest and digest stimulus in our body uh, and I think that that sort of um, reactivation of blood flow is really um, at a low intensity really uh, helps to suppress that sympathetic activity um, further and, and recover that parasympathetic yeah, um, that's activation really interesting. <laughs> yeah I'd, I'd agree with that I, I'm that's sort of where I've gotten to with what I think it, it is as well. I don't think it's about, yeah, sort of flushing lactate and things like that. It's, it's, geez, it's, there's, there's like a couple of good solid discussions around, you know, the nervous system, isn't there, and how that functions in training, reacts to training. It's just mm. so, there's so much in that area, isn't there? Yeah, and, and I think what's probably becoming more and more understood is that most of the fatigue, you know, you're doing 20, 25 or so odd training weeks, it's not really, and especially endurance in endurance sports as opposed to sprinting sports, the fatigue that you develop through all of that training is much more of a system-based, you know, central nervous system mm. sort of based fatigue more than it is a peripheral muscular yeah. fatigue. So, you know, outside of things like, you know, delayed onset muscle soreness and things of that nature um, and some muscle damage sorts of things, you know, I think by the time you finish and sort of cool down from your exercise and whatnot, certainly by the time you've started your next training session, things like lactic acid and blood acidity levels and so on are, are all back down to baseline. They, they come back down quite quickly. So it's generally not peripheral fatigue that causes, you know, you know, I guess a reason why you may not perform your next training session at a really yeah. high um, level. It's probably more of that sort of autonomic nervous system fatigue that I was describing before. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm. Anyway, sorry. So, where were we? What, what's next? Uh, well, so we, we've talked about our recovery for the threshold session. Um, so the next, uh, the next one to recover was actually the anaerobic glycolytic um, session. So for heart rate variability, that took about 18 hours. And then very similarly, um, the VO2 max session took about 16, uh, 16 hours there. So a lot shorter, um, a lot shorter with those those two sessions and the threshold threshold session. So uh, what we then looked at was their time above um, certain percentages of heart rate max. So when we delved a little bit deeper into it, we looked at uh, the time that they spent, the amount of time that they spent at 80 to 90% of heart rate max and above 90% uh, heart rate max. And what we found was um, with the threshold session, they spent a huge amount of time uh, a huge amount longer than the other uh, two sessions above 90% heart rate max so they spent about half an hour uh, in that sort of zone whereas the other two uh, for the VO2 max session they spent about 15 minutes and for the, uh, the anaerobic glycolytic session they spent about two minutes and a lot mm. of that's related to you know cardiac drift with the 10 minutes you can expect um, heart rate to continue to increase uh, throughout that 10 minutes and then with the glycolytic session because it was so short uh, there was a heart rate lag effect so they wouldn't have been able to get their uh, heart rates up into that sort of 90% zone um, especially because of the five minute uh, rest period there yeah. uh, so that sort of led us to to suggest that um, there was an effect of time at high heart rates uh, that dictated recovery time course so uh, longer time spent at higher heart rates or heart rates above sort of 80% of heart rate max really dictated recovery time course rather than necessarily uh, intensity itself. Yeah that, well that's interesting so so the in in maybe coaching layman's terms the longer set more threshold focused means it takes a lot longer to recover from but what what would you speculate would be the actual performance impact of them as well? Like, I mean, if you were gonna if you were gonna choose between, you know, if you could do one set of workload in a week, um, one's gonna take a lot longer to recover from, as you've described. But ultimately, obviously, the the signal is different, um, clearly. But what if you're talking about a two k rowing race? What is going to give you the best performance gains towards that? Because it's almost like an efficiency of training question in one sense, isn't it? Like, yeah, that's 
Yeah, that's sort of. Do, do you that, understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I haven't explained myself very well there, but I, I think we've spent enough time together now that I mm, think yeah. I know what you mean. Okay, you so didn't explain you trans- that well at all. Can you translate then? <laughs> so, if if I've understood that correctly, that's sort of what I was going to ask as well. So, um, I guess in terms of depending on which sort of training phase you're in, which sort of training is going to take the most out of you at given points of the year. Um, knowing that you've got to have to back up to recover for mm-hmm. the next hard training session or you know racing depending on you know if you're in a sort of a racing period is that sort of what you mean yeah absolutely it's exactly yeah yeah so that's kind of what i'm thinking and 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 i guess you've got performance measures here as well which are interesting because then they don't line up exactly with the physiological measures which is interesting and um you know we were just at the um the national applied physiology conference last week and that was a bit of a discussion point in that we measure some physiological things and we measure some performance things and they often don't line up. Yeah, um, so just explain that quickly. So what we've got here is, or maybe I maybe you can explain it, um, in terms of your your performance measure being that that Wingate test, which was what, a 30 second, yeah. and one, a one-off all out 30 second sprint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what did you find there? Yeah, so performance recovered uh, quite a lot quicker than our autonomic uh, recovery measures. So uh, we had around sort of the eight hour to up to 13 hours, eight hours for both threshold and the glycolytic session and up to 13 hours for the VO2 max session. So uh, substantially quicker recovery in those sessions than um, than for the autonomic variables. So that sort of really led us to, um, to consider that when we're looking at recovery, are we just looking at performance measures? Like, is, is the recovery of performance enough to tell us that the athlete is recovered? Because our autonomic uh, measures sort of um, disagree with that and are telling us that, no, perhaps they're not, and perhaps they need um, a day or two longer to recover. So, um, yeah, so that that gave us some, some good information around sort of tapering and preparing for um, preparing for racing so uh, in terms of uh, which session to choose in that area because we know that um, both the, the glycolytic session uh, well we know that the glycolytic session recovered quite quickly in both the, the performance measure and the autonomic measure that would be a, an effective session to choose in that period so sort of your short short duration but very um, very high intensity. Super max. Yeah, Super and max, sort yeah. of anaerobic priming sessions, yeah, mm-hmm. um, would be quite effective in that area. Whereas, you know, if we're looking at, um, if we're looking at during a, a heavy training block, we need to consider not only uh, performance recovery there, but also autonomic recovery. Because if we're backing up sessions uh, after each other, uh, yeah, they might they might be recovered or they might perform well uh, for a, for a period of time. But if they're not completely uh, recovered, if they're not completely back to their um, their normal functioning state, and we're backing up those sessions one after the other, then eventually that is going to have a performance effect, and it's going to be um, you know it's going to relate to an accumulation of fatigue, which isn't what we want. So. Yeah. Um, and that's that's pushing you into that non-adaptive state that we've talked about before. Yeah, potentially, yeah. And so, and I guess, look, there's a couple of really good points in there, or, or mm-hmm. if I've got about 100 questions for you, then I probably won't remember all of them. But I guess, yeah, one of those points is that, you know, sometimes we expect athletes not to meet, be recovered between sessions. Absolutely. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you see, you know, a poor performance on, a, on water, speeds are down, the ergo power might be down. On water power might be down now that we can measure it with Anna, but um, you know that's not necessarily the end of the world if it's you know a session here or there. But if it's an accumulation over time and you're consistently underperforming, um, then yeah, potentially that can become you can get yourself into that non-adaptive state where you're training hard, you're doing all the work, but you're not actually adapting well to it because your your system is suppressed, I guess. And there's some good you know heart rate variability studies that have suggested that to be the case that we've we've probably referred to before um but yeah i mean i guess to your your point there anna like yeah you might choose something like that glycolytic session because it's quick to recover from get sort of good bang for your buck in terms of a training effect um that might be a good session to do coming into racing because you can recover quickly from it but if you've decided you do want to choose another session 
you might want to do the VO2 type of session. I know, Bill, that's a session you would do mm. pretty often with, with the pair, um, you know, three and a half minute repeats, you know, four or five of those leading into racing, trying to sit as close to 100% yeah. prognostic. And that's a great session, not just physically, but obviously, you know, technically, tactically, mentally, all of those things. Um, so you might decide, all right, if I'm going to do that session, I might do it one day removed from when I you know, ordinarily might have chosen to do it, given how long I know it's going to take to recover from. Yeah, I think, I think that's really, that is really interesting information for a coach, not just in, as you say, the taper leading into racing, but in that training block immediately before that sort of uh, three to five weeks leading into the big race where you're doing that sort of training is, you know, it is almost up trying to understand, you know, almost like a cheat sheet. Well, what, what would be the typical recovery length of time from the different types of training that you might do as inverted commas work pieces mm, yeah and and i guess my next question Anna, for you would be um you know obviously these training sessions are you know quite long in in nature outside of the the 30 second sprint pieces um and then your performance measure was a 30 second test which i guess given the practicality of what you could do it's probably a really good one to choose um but if you had say a longer performance test if the performance test was a you know almost like a training session um so rather than 30 seconds of work it might have been five minutes of work or it might have been you know something else do you think that those time to recovery would have been longer for a more challenging performance test yeah potentially it's um it's hard to say. The The reason we chose the 30 second was uh, because it's been shown to highly correlate with uh, 2,000 metre performance. Yep. Um, and again, obviously, we're doing it before each training session, each of their subsequent training sessions. So we didn't want it to be adding fatigue to the recovery yeah, exactly. process. You could exactly do a 2K after it's time. But before ideally, a training session. <laughs> you would, wouldn't you? That would be almost the ultimate thing would be say, well, how, how did they perform in a 2K? Uh, you know, half a day afterwards, you know, a day after, a day and a half, that sort of thing. But you could just couldn't yeah, do that. But yeah, but then that would you can expect that to yeah continue to fatigue them. Yeah, that's going to be throwing off much big, too, Yeah, way too big. Yeah, look, all things considered, the test that you chose was probably the right one. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting if you could have done a longer performance test. Mm. Would you have seen longer? My my guess might be. Somebody might be able to get themselves up to do a 30-second sprint and do a really good job and get back to baseline of that pretty quickly. But if you ask them to do a 2K for argument's sake, um, I don't think that they'd be able to recover within 13 hours to be able to get up to do another one. So um, it's interesting, like, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is almost supporting some of your autonomic measures that took a lot longer to recover. So yeah, your HRV and your heart rate recovery measures that took a lot longer to recover um, if you did a longer performance test, they might have more reflected those. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, looking at a 30 second test gives you quite a good insight and practically was really the only thing you could have done, but to just say, oh, well, their performance is, be- is better within 13 hours. We can do whatever we want. We can train hard yeah. every single day because <laughs> people are going to be recovered within 13 hours. Yeah. Yeah. And it probably tells you a bit of a false tale. Yeah. 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 No, that's, um, I think, yeah, from the results we had, it sort of really highlighted that you can't just use measures like um, like a 30-second test to determine whether or not they're recovered because it, it does disagree with all the other measures. And we can see from all the other measures that, no, they're not quite back to their, um, their baseline state. So, so yeah. that might be a good segue into talking then a bit about the other measures in terms of what, you know, did, did you observe any differences in the the recovery baseline measures that you were taking, were there some that you felt were more reliable than others and, and what did you learn from that stuff? Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, looking at them, so we had heart rate recovery, uh, which was... Um, so how did you measure that? Is that like a so, minute afterwards? Yeah, so the, during their 5-5 five, five test, so five minutes of submaximal rowing, and then following that they just uh, took their feet out of the... Uh, the foot plate and just sat there for another five minutes. So we measured, it was the absolute change in heart rate over the five, first over minute. Five, over no, the first over minute. the first minute following the 5-5 five, five, uh, or following the five minutes of submaximal rowing. So uh, with that one, we saw quite a quicker recovery than um, heart rate variability and post-exercise heart rate variability. 
Uh, and with that one, um, heart rate recovery is really a measure of sympathetic withdrawal. So that, uh, as we were speaking of before, that uh, stress response to exercise, um, it's really, um, yeah, withdrawing after exercise and parasympath the parasympathetic uh, uh, system is sort of being activated. And so from that, we sort of expected it to recover a lot quicker than the heart rate variability measures because they're measures of parasympathetic activity, not sympathetic activity. Sure. Um, yep, so, so that was a lot quicker. Um, but really, that kind of led us back to the heart rate variability measures being the most comprehensive measure of recovery um, because obviously the parasympathetic act, uh, the parasympathetic system is affected by a whole range of things, um, yeah. blood pressure, blood flow, um, that sort of thing. So uh, really we, we sort of thought out of those two, um, heart rate variability and post-exercise heart rate variability, they're going to give us the, the most comprehensive sort of insight into what how the body's actually recovering because there's no one measure that um, can tell us everything. There's so yeah. many different factors of recovery. Oh, damn. I thought you were going <laughs> to give us one thing that we yeah, could we're do. Looking for no, silver. unfortunately. But I <laughs> no do, silver bullet, don't I? Yeah, so, so out of those two, I think that they're the most comprehensive. And then from a practicality point of view, so for post-exercise heart rate variability, we did find it took longer to recover. So we had, uh, for the threshold se session, it was up to 38 hours. So it was sort of eight hours longer than, um, than heart rate variability. But from a practicality point of view, um, it does have quite a large range of error. So I think its coefficient of variation for the measure is about, um, I think it's about 23% or something like that compared Pretty to about 12% for um, HIV. So uh, it, it does have a lot more error and it is a bit harder to, um, to measure because the athletes do have to do submaximal exercise first. Um, Whereas for heart rate variability, it's easy. They can do it in the morning, just mm. resting when they wake up. There's uh, apps now you can get where you don't even need to put a heart rate monitor on and um, you know you just need a minute of, of resting heart rate to, um, to measure it. So from a practicality point of view and a sort of measure of comprehensive recovery, we, um, we, in our um, findings, we suggest heart rate recovery. Uh, sorry, heart, heart rate variability. Yeah. And were there any? Did you notice were there any people that didn't uh, that that didn't sort of have the recovery markers show up well from heart rate variability, or was it fairly reliable across the population? It was definitely um, yeah one of the more reliable uh, measures that that we took. Uh, really interestingly though was the, the range of recovery that we saw. So there was a huge amount of um, inter-individual variation in recovery. So for each of my recovery measures and for each um, in high intensity interval session that they did, there was at least, uh, I think it was 24 hours between, um, like a range of 24 hours within the subject cohort. So like I had, um, I had ranges of, you know, a participant recovering within one hour post-exercise or showing markers of recovery within one hour post-exercise all the way up to sort of 60 um, and sometimes up to 72 hours. So there was a massive range. Yeah. And so, it, so that's, again, from a coaching point of view, particularly in a sport like rowing in crew boats, that's really, that's a really confounding problem, isn't it? It's, mm. You know, you could have a, a boat where someone's recovering a day quicker than somebody else in one yeah, sense, exactly. couldn't you? Yeah, mm, yeah. yeah. and like, intuitively, you, you see that happen. Like, you know, of we've course. got athletes yeah. here who seemingly just bounce back after everything really, really quickly. And, you know, you're smashing them in training and the next day they're bright and sp sprightly, ready to go again. And others that after a hard day, it, you know, they're really dragging their feet for a couple of days. And um, it's really interesting to see that you know, that's, that's a real thing, you know, that you've measured there that you can kind of say, well, actually, based on all of these different measures, it does take people a lot longer to recover um, than others. And, and there's certainly lots of different things that go into recovery. You know, maybe there's nutritional things, sleep things, lifestyle, lifestyle factors, etc. But, um, you know, it is interesting there can be a wide range of, um, you know, recovery time 
courses for different athletes? Yeah, definitely. And those those factors, sleep, nutrition, uh, external stress, they're things that we can't control for. They're mm. things that are going to dif uh, differ between athletes. So it really tells us that we need to monitor recovery on an individual basis, that athletes are different. Um, and we can't expect them to all respond the same way to training. Yeah, that, um, those, those findings, that huge range, uh, sort of led me on to the next study of my master's, which was to see whether or not that variability was um, related to what the athlete's energetic contribution to, uh, to 2,000 metre rowing was. So uh, what we did with that was we looked at um, athletes' energetic contribution, so either um, or their proportions of aerobic energy and anaerobic energy to a 2,000 metre rowing test. And, uh, and we looked at whether or not um, highly aerobic athletes differed from highly, um, or athletes with greater anaerobic contributions in their recovery requirements. Um, it's a really good idea. Whose idea was that? Oh, I think it was uh, Dan Flues' <laughs> idea, my, my secondary supervisor. You sure? Oh, yeah, okay. you'll have to oh, check good. with him, right? Oh, yeah, I'll, ch I'll chat with him. Okay, I've, very I've good. I've you guys have talked on that, that topic. <laughs> mm, yeah. Okay, carry on. <laughs> carry on with the back. back Just burning some bridges here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very good. Yeah. So, yeah, what, so what did you say there? Yeah, so, so what we expected to see was that um, we expected the anaerobic athletes to really be able to thrash themselves in those high-intensity interval sessions, to really, um, really be able to uh, suppress those recovery variables um, post-exercise and, and take a lot longer to recover. So essentially we expected them to be able to perform those sessions at a sort of higher intensity or higher capacity than our aerobic athletes and therefore take a, a bit longer to recover. Um, and so I guess first question would be, did you see that they did, I guess, train harder or at higher intensities during some of those sessions? Uh, yes, we did. So um, our anaerobic athletes uh, did have, I can't remember off the top of my head what the numbers were, but they did have a higher percentage um, of VO2 peak. Um, for those sessions, particularly the glycolytic and the VO2 max session, they also mm. produced um, higher lactate values. Mm. Yeah, um, but what we didn't expect was uh, that our aerobic athletes actually had a greater suppression of our autonomic variables, so um, heart rate variability and post-exercise heart rate variability um, were suppressed to a greater extent following exercise, uh, one hour post-exercise post the high intensity uh, interval sessions than they were in the anaerobic athletes, um, which isn't what we, like we'd expect, um, you know, those athletes who were sort of working at a higher, um, higher anaerobic capacity to have a greater suppression of those variables, but it wasn't what it wasn't we saw. The case. And was that the same across each of the, di the three different um, interval training sessions or was that? It was, yeah. All three, yeah. 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 yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Not, yeah, not what you'd expect yeah. at all, is it? No, it's not. Um, and then when we looked at recovery time course, we actually didn't see a difference between the two types. So even though our aerobic athletes had a greater suppression, they appeared to have a faster rate of recovery because they recovered within the same absolute time course or mm. within the same range of absolute time course. Yeah, yeah. So, so interesting. So I guess... It, it, it maybe makes the point that the more aerobic that the athlete is, the faster they're able to recover. So if they had a greater um, you know, reduction in capacity, let's say, or further re requirement of recovery to, to cover, they were able to do that in the same amount of time as the anaerobic group that had you know, less to recover from, so to speak, to put That's it into right. quite simple terms. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, that's it's it's funny. Like some things in there that you would, I guess, yeah, that makes a bit of sense. And other things, it's just like oh, would not have thought that at all. Yeah. No. Um, which is really good because I guess it sort of busts a few myths and a few dogmas that you just people just sort of take as facts. Mm. Um, which I guess is the whole point of of different types of research is to kind of actually come to the truth of you know, what, you know, this is what we think, but actually, uh, you know, maybe yeah. we need to change our thinking on, on certain things. Exactly, yeah, that's, that's what really surprised me when I was going through my literature review uh, for, this, um, for this study was that, you know, that 48-hour that number is always thrown around, you know, 48 hours between high-intensity interval sessions, but really, where does that come from? And it's not, 
the research that it, it came from is done in sort of recreational and, and trained athletes, certainly not in highly trained or um, or elite athletes, and, and it's done in a passive recovery period where that's not realistic um, no. in a normal training session, in a normal training um, scenario. So, yeah. Well, it's, it's very interesting. Before we get on to our last part, which is going to be key take-homes, is there anything else that we need to cover from the, the actual research that you think is pretty key here, um, uh, I think, yeah, I think we've gone through a lot of it. Um, I guess the only other sort of thing that we looked at was, um, as I mentioned, we looked at uh, acute deviation from baseline. So how those measures differed one hour post-exercise um, post uh, from their baseline measures. And, and we actually found, interestingly, no difference, or, well, the differences were only trivial or unclear between uh, all measures um, of recovery for each of the, the sessions. So there, there didn't really seem to be much difference, which tells us that measuring um, or assessing recovery measures immediately post-exercise isn't really going to tell us, well, we, we didn't think it was going to tell us too much about recovery duration, yeah. um, because that would have been a, a, a sort of key practical um, yeah. take-home that, that you could implement. Uh, but then when we looked at some correlations, so we looked at how, even though they, they didn't appear to differ, how they related to recovery time course, we did find that they were strongly related to recovery time course. So the greater the suppression following exercise, the longer it took to recover. Uh, and that was mostly in the threshold and the glycolytic session. So, so that is, I mean, it needs further research going forward, but um, it is potentially an area that um, that could be uh, so really, the, theoretically, I could do a training session with a group, and we could take like a heart rate variability afterwards and see what that number was, and that might actually give us a, a bit of a predictor as to a bit of, yeah, a bit of information about how long they're going to take to recover. Com yeah, compared to their baseline, how how much it was suppressed, and that might give like a quick way of getting some good individual. Um, feedback on athletes as well. So mm. perhaps one athlete may take longer compared to another athlete. And yeah. some, some of the new watches and wearables that are coming out try to do some of that using heart rate variability. It'd be interesting to see whether that does actually evolve as a, as a thing. I know the first uh, sort of um, of the modern uh, Garmin's and, and um, Suntos and that, they, they give a nominal recovery time, which was just based on how hard you'd work. But mm. I know the most recent version of the, a lot of the Garmin, the Phoenix 3s, with the wrist-based um, uh, heart rate measure will actually do a heart rate, you can build in to, the, to a few of the apps like a heart rate variability measure during the exercise and afterwards and it will give you a recovery based on that. It'd be interesting to see if that actually does get, you know, I guess uh, optimised so that it actually works because that would be a really interesting um, thing or helpful thing for coaches in planning sessions coming forward wouldn't it mm, certainly yeah that'd be interesting and yeah i guess yeah the hard thing there might be just that individual those differences that we spoke about mm. before um, i'm gonna get to that yeah well so one one question that i then had or for i guess probably both of you guys is things i've heard coaches say before is that i don't necessarily like doing too high intensity training that sort of those five by three and a half minute efforts that sort of thing because it just takes too much out of the athletes and it takes too long to them for, to recover from. So I'd prefer to do my four or five by eight minutes in the last block leading into racing because it doesn't take as much out of them. Um, but the, these, these findings would suggest almost the exact opposite of that. So, yeah, yeah. what do you think about that? Yeah, so it, it really um, sort of agrees with the polarised model of training where, you know, do your high stuff high and your low stuff low, your low sessions low. Um, those threshold sessions do take a lot, will appear from, from my findings, appear to take a lot more out of the athlete and, and take a lot longer to, uh, to recover from. Yeah, I, I think from a coaching point of view, there's a big difference between doing uh, a bunch of three and a half minute pieces at 105% or 107% versus doing them at like 97% or 100%. And if you, like you referred before when we did it with the girls leading into London, and that was one of the key workloads that we did regularly, like twice a week in that last sort of five weeks. Um, and 
it was very specifically targeted at a boat speed in really good water and it wasn't flat out and so that i think that is that is much more like what you've prescribed there if you go five percent harder than that you go above vo2 max yeah they do that there's a that threshold point you know it's almost like a threshold for a reason after that every percent after that you're just getting compounded fatigue and i think that's probably why a lot of coaches anecdotally find they don't like doing it because it does smash their mm-hmm. athletes because they're going three percent or five percent or ten percent too hard yeah and realistically and anna correct me if i'm wrong you prescribe these sessions as do this as hard as you can c- complete five right. by three and a half minutes and yeah. people manage to do that at 97 percent of vo2 p power that's yeah. right plus or minus about five percent yeah. um you know, you can't do that session at 110% of the so O2 max power. It's if physiologically that, if impossible. If you did that in the boat, it's mid-race. 97% yeah. is mid-race, mid-race of yep. VO2. Like that's that's what you're going to, if you nail it, that's where you're going to sort of find yourself in terms of your actual output on the oar. So it's about picking that. And, and then the first couple of sets are relatively okay. And the third one is, you know, really mentally pretty hard. And you're surviving the fourth and fifth, but you—that's when you've done that piece of work really well. Exactly. When people are holding on to finish the second piece, which is invariably what happens. So that's why it works well with highly trained athletes and coaches that know exactly what they're doing and pick the the speeds and the intensities really well. Mm. And it can be a disaster with people who go about it mindlessly. Exactly. And I mean that. And it reminds me of something that um, Kath Braschino said to me when I first started here. So Kath was um, the rowing physiologist before I started, worked many years in the program. And somebody said to her one time that you know they were scared of doing this sort of training because you know you can't, you're doing all the all this work, 20 minutes worth of work at a, you know 110% of 2k pace. And she's like, oh, hang on, oh, is it, you know, that's what you think it is. You know, that's why you're scared of it. It's actually not that at all. It's more mm. it, it's more like 95% plus or minus depending on what the session is you know this one was 97 percent. so um yeah understanding what you're actually doing is important so you're not i guess scaring yourself off from something that could be and this session is you know i'm assuming the reason you chose it is because it's a it's you know a session that's done you know quite regularly by by rowing athletes and it's a really good session for a number of reasons um, it's so a, yeah, you don't it's want to a scare meat yourself. potatoes VO two session that one. Like that's absolutely. A, that's almost like if you're going to advise a rowing coach as to a session they should always have in their training year. That's one. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much a bread and butter type of session. Yeah. Yeah, we wanted to. We wanted these sessions to really, um, really inform rowing training programming. So we we tried to um, get them reflective of what was typically done in rowing. Yeah. Mm. I guess just having a look at some of these numbers, man, it gets it gets really complicated, and at the risk of overcomplicating it, um, you know, your the VO in the VO two session, the the heart rate variability recovery is a lot quicker than the threshold session, which you said before, but then the heart rate recovery, which is more of that sympathetic nervous system, and that's a highly you know highly sympathetic stimulus, being that high intensity, took longer than the threshold session and then the performance in terms of the 30 second all out test also took longer so again it isn't so simple okay oh yeah threshold takes longer to recover than vo2 but oh, there were a couple of things that it was the other way around as well so yeah, exactly recovery is not a simple no thing. it's not <laughs> i've learned that from this this research yeah yeah, yeah. it's very comprehensive so many factors and um we can't really just i mean it would be amazing if we could just look at one one parameter and know whether athletes were recovered but realistically we can't yeah Yeah, we we need a a holistic approach exactly yeah because to that point if you only looked at heart rate variability you would say oh well threshold is harder than than vo2 but if you only looked at the the 30 second power you would say well actually no vo2 is harder than threshold and you picked another one you get another story so um yeah, I guess that is where you need to take account, into account a few different things. Um, and did you actually, did you have any perceptual measures? We did, yeah, yeah. So um, we we recorded um, the athlete's perceived recovery and we haven't, ta- I haven't talked about it um, because what we found was that they didn't actually recover. So they, they didn't feel like they recovered at all for any of the sessions throughout the 72 hours that we measured. Um, and what that really tells us is that um, you can't perceived. 
No, um, perceived recovery is just so sensitive to training load because their, their first programmed uh, rest session was the afternoon after our last uh, recovery measure at 72 hours. So um, they were training throughout that whole time and they, they were really feeling the accumulation of those training sessions. Um, and yeah, they, they just didn't feel recovered through that time. So um, again, another, another factor to consider that, uh, yeah, our, our data is telling us that their performance is recovered, they're back to baseline in terms of their uh, autonomic recovery, but they don't actually feel recovered. Mm. And that, I mean, that's a really great point. Um, and sort of conversations I've, I've had with athletes before is that sometimes you come in and you feel like rubbish and then you do a PB. So, um, you know, I distinctly remember one time in a, I think it might have been a 5k ergo test leading into the Olympic year and an athlete come in and they'd had a couple of days where they were feeling a little bit tired and they arrived and I was like, you know, how are you feeling? Oh, not 100%. And I distinctly remember saying to her, I was like, you can talk yourself out of it or you can talk yourself into it. Mm. And she's like, yep. And so, and then she went ahead and she did a PB. So sometimes if you, you know, you don't feel that well recovered, you might you know, physically speaking, actually, maybe you are recovered. So, um, you know, don't always let the way you feel talk yourself out of a performance, I guess, is the point. Yeah, yeah. And certainly something to, um, I think that we need to keep in mind as sports scientists as well, just the value of talking to athletes and seeing how they're feeling rather than just looking at the numbers, because the numbers can tell us one thing, but they may be feeling completely different. Mm. Mm. Well, I was going to say the opposite. Just ignore what they say, because they, <laughs> they're just going to tell you that they're tired all the time. Yeah. <laughs> And we know they're not. <laughs> so we might get on to then some key takeaways because there's a lot I would suggest. Would that be fair? Hmm. All right, I'm going to kick off. So first, the first one that I thought of in terms of applications for this um, is probably you know a practical one from my point of view is it sounds like from what you saw that the heart rate variability measure is is probably the most simple yet um, clear, reliable indicator of how the athlete's system is coping with the training and recovering. Would that be fair? Yeah, if I had to choose one, I'd go with, with the heart rate variability. And as you say, you know, the apps that are available these days are pretty readily available. It does probably rely on having a good sports scientist to actually, who knows what they're doing to interpret that information. But you could imagine over the next five years, the automation around that's going to improve. And so that, that's probably, from my point of view, a pretty key one from a coach's point of view. If I wanted a tool out of this, some of this stuff, that's one tool I would take. Yeah, and that's really pleasing to hear because that's the one that we've chosen <laughs> um, even before you'd completed this um, study. So based off a lot of the work that um, Dan Plews in New Zealand was doing. So um, yeah, it's great. And we, we have been using that now for probably about two years, yeah. the heart rate variable, or maybe even a little bit longer. Um, and yeah, we found it is quite sensitive and, and it is obviously each athlete does it for themselves. So it's very individual and you can see when one athlete who's doing the same training as another athlete is completely in the bin and the other one's completely fine. So, um, yeah, we, we found it to be pretty sensitive. I mean, it's not perfect and there is a bit of difficulty sometimes interpreting it. It's not really clear cut, but yeah, it can be pretty valuable. Mm. My second key takeaway would be that um, it's worth really considering the type of recovery that you're looking at as a coach when you're prescribing something. So um, the recovery from you know, what, what you might perceive as being super high intensity activity might be actually a lot different to what you would expect depending on the actual total load that was um, submitted to the body. So sometimes just doing a lower intensity choice, um, which you might perceive as being a easier option, say, you know, in a real world example might be, oh, look, we were going to do, um, you know, five or six three-minute pieces but actually they're a bit smashed so we'll just do three or four ten-minute pieces at a lower intensity that might actually elicit the opposite response from a recovery point of view so you need to be careful about that yeah definitely so yeah sort of um i guess that comes to the point of there does appear to be a uh, durational effect of high intensity exercise on recovery time course so you know those sessions above the second ventilatory threshold the longer they are the longer it'll take to recover from. Good rule of thumb. Rodney? Yeah, I guess, I mean, we probably covered a lot of those as we went through. Um, 
Yeah, but to me, it, it, I think understanding which type of sessions take the most out of you and the longest to recover from, I think is really important. It can be, you know, quite important to consider in your normal big long training blocks. And, you know, we, as rowers, rowers are training for months on, on end before they actually get to do any racing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, taking some of those things into account is really important in terms of where you might structure your, your hard sessions weekly. You know, you know, how, how many hours between hard sessions do you need? How many hard sessions might you fit into a week? And, you know, it's difficult to really get a clear-cut answer from the study. Um, and I think, again, because each athlete is going to be different, each cohort of athletes will be different depending on their, their level. Um, but I guess almost just as a, um, you know, something in the, in the back of your mind, it sort of does suggest that different sessions take different amounts of time to recover from. So... Um, where you structure them in the week might be an important thing. Um, and then from there, I guess, leading into your racing period, you might, it might be that four to six week and then your taper, um, what type of sessions that you might choose, uh, how much they might take out of your athlete. You know, maybe some take it out less than what you might have thought. So, you know, when you're going into your higher intensity block and thinking, oh, maybe we need to reduce the volume of training to account for the increase in intensity, well, maybe that's not a thing at all. Um, that's something that we talk about a lot. So in the last six weeks, maybe we'll drop the volume because we're going to do some VO2 max training now. But based on this, it suggests that you know, maybe you don't have to do that. Yeah. Um, maybe you can keep the volume exactly the same. And another couple of key points from me, I think leading on from that is that in terms of continuing volume in recovery, that that lower intensity... Um, you know, quite low intensity based training um, does actually promote recovery or can actually promote recovery. So often there's a fear of, you know, say you've raced in the morning, for example, of, or well, we won't do too much this afternoon, but actually just moving and keeping things going, there is actually some physiological benefits and some potential um, neurological benefits in terms of recovery for that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And exactly to Anna's point before that being talking about that polarized model, like if you're going to do hard training and want to use some other training to help you recover before the next one, not sort of battle paddling it out at T3 as hard as you can at rate 20 or whatever it might be, because that's only going to probably compound the fatigue rather than mitigate it. Um, so yeah, using those uh, lower intensity sessions and ensuring, well, yeah, they actually are low intensity. Yeah. And the final one for me really would be, and this is more, less of a takeaway, more of a challenge to everyone um, thinking about this is clearly from what Anna's uh, measured here, different types of training have different recovery requirements, but they also have different recovery requirements for different athletes. Like we've seen some who can almost be completely recovered almost immediately and some that take days. So in the rowing context, how do you account for that? And we've talked before around using heart rate variability as a measure of almost testing and going, well, you're not ready to do that today, you're gonna to do this. So you'll come back tomorrow and we'll try and see if you're ready to do your hard session again tomorrow and, and using that as a measure. But um, being able to use the ergo and the bike as a method of modulating when hard training is layered into a training program at particular times of the season might be a very effective way of making the most out of the time that you have with the athlete so that you could highly individualize when athletes were ready to do their next hard session based on their recovery using something like heart rate variability as a measure. Yeah, and exactly as you say, the when they're in the boat, they're doing the same thing. So there's the same there's, thing. there's yep. no, no way around that. Um, but, and I think, you know, we probably have discussed this on previous episodes, the research that have used heart rate variability guided training. Um, so a quick refresh would be, you know, one group doing, you've got your two hard sessions there on a Tuesday and a Thursday every single week for the entire 12 weeks or whatever it might be. And the other group is, well, you're only going to do those hard sessions when your heart rate variability dictates that you're ready to. Um, and in those studies, and there's been a few of them now, there might be three or four of them out there now that have all shown the same thing, that doing the heart rate variability guided training leads to better training adaptation in terms of some of those fitness markers, thresholds and so on, um, and better performances in whatever the performance trial that, that they chose was. And the thing that I find the most interesting about all of that is that generally in those studies, the heart rate variability guided athletes do less number of hard sessions so in that one example, the one group did two a week every week, so they averaged two. In the other one, sometimes they did two, sometimes they only did one, sometimes they might have done none. 
And so they averaged on average one and a half. So across 12 weeks, that's however many less sessions. So they've done less hard number of sessions over a period of time and improved by more. Yeah. So, you know, that more is always better is clearly not... More for less, right? <laughs> more for, less for more? <laughs> yeah, so it, it is hard to do. And, and we, got, we got to sort of play around with it a little bit this year with, um, yeah. with Josh and Josh. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it is hard to, to manipulate a little bit, just more from logistics than yeah. anything else. It's a logistical challenge, but you know, what Anna's um, seen in her research would suggest that it's something that's, that probably needs to be explored mm. and is an opportunity for people that are looking to find a performance edge potentially with their training. Mm. Definitely, yeah. I think, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, when, when you really think about how, um, how diverse we are as a, as a species, you know, the human race is hugely diverse, it's sort of surprising that we expect people to respond to training the same way and we can give them the same thing and they'll, they'll adapt the same way. It's just not true. We, you know, I think in order to maximise adaptation, we really need to look at that individualised approach. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's probably a really good sort of segue to one day we need to get Alex Bauer onto the, onto the podcast who's doing research in pretty much that, giving athletes you know, similar and different training and seeing how do, how do people respond. We will. I'm no, no doubt we'll get her on board soon. Mm, she's knee-deep in <laughs> testing at the moment. Yeah. She's working very hard at the moment, but she'll be done in, I think, a month to the day. Yeah, very good. Yep, she's got beers scheduled for the 26th of November. Whereabouts? <laughs> Let everyone know. Yeah, I'm not sure where it'll be. <laughs> well, um, it's been great having you on the show today. We look forward to talking more um, you know about uh, obviously the power study coming up which we're all very excited about but you know potentially even getting some further thoughts on this as we continue to explore it but um, you know fascinating today and hopefully uh, everybody out there has enjoyed it as much as I have yeah great thanks for having me it's great to be on